Before reading the scripture to you this morning, Calvin has asked me to share a few words with you about the ministry that I'm currently involved in. I have the privilege of serving for this next year with Leighton Ford Ministries, and they are based in Charlotte, and my wife and I have just moved to Charlotte and are just settling in, and we're up here for the weekend, and glad to be with you. The work I'll be doing involves uh, ministry in a local church for six months until uh, January of 89. I'll be working in Christ Covenant Church in Charlotte and I will be uh, assistant to the pastor at the church there for evangelism. And then from February through June of 1989, I'll be in Ottawa, Canada, preparing for Dr. Ford's crusade there, which will take place the last week in May, the beginning of June. And it's an exciting time and an exciting opportunity. I was just reading last night in the scriptures this verse from the book of Numbers, and I'm sure all of you Remember the story of uh, the Israelites as they were traveling through the desert and Moses picked key men out of the uh, uh, many men of Israel to go in and be spies. He sent them into the land of uh, Canaan to spy out the land and see what the conditions were before they went in to take it over. And uh, the men came back and many of them gave a negative report that it was too difficult, that uh, there were giants in the land, and that it was too difficult to take over for Israel. But then two men, Joshua and Caleb, gave a positive report. And I was reading last night how it says about the man Caleb. The Lord says about him, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. You see, all the Israelites believed the negative report that they would not be able to conquer the giants. Not even with God's power would they be able to conquer the giants. They believed that negative report. And so the Lord said, you cannot come in to the promised land, but I will let my servant Caleb come in because he has a different spirit and he serves me wholeheartedly. I think we're living at a critical juncture in world history. It's my personal belief as I read the scriptures and as I look at the world that Jesus Christ is going to return soon and that we have very little time to finish the work that he's called us to do of taking the gospel into every nation, unto every tribe and kindred. There's not much time. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can carry out his work. And he calls us to be men and women of a different spirit, I'm looking at opportunities this next year in addition to working with Leighton Ford to uh, doing some preaching on my own and some opportunities may be opening up to go to Eastern Europe where the people there and the churches live under persecution and I'm sure uh, the stories there are similar to those you've heard from Dr. Akers about China and uh, the Soviet Union. And the people there are living under persecution. But I believe, as it says in the book of Revelation, that God has given them an open door because they've been faithful to him and they've served him wholeheartedly and they have a different spirit. I pray that God would give each one of us that different spirit, the belief that we can conquer in the power of the spirit the world for Jesus Christ in our generation. I'd appreciate your prayers for me and for Leighton Ford's ministry and, and all the wonderful work that they're doing. Now let's have you look along as I read the scripture from the book of James. 
chapter 4, verse 11 through chapter 5, verse 6. Hear the word of God. Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you that you judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain, whereas you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have killed the righteous man. He does not resist you. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this great hymn which we have just sung, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. If there is any person in this chapel today or listening to this voice on the radio who really cannot say that and mean it, please, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, lead them to that place today and help them to be able to say an eternal yes to Jesus. We pray that you will add your blessings to us now as we look into this very practical letter of James, instructing us into the fact that the Christian life is to be lived and helping us to die to self in order that Jesus might live out his life in us. We are thankful that we may bring these gifts this day here to this place and ask that they may be used to the glory of Jesus Christ, to the spread of the gospel, and to help many to love and to know him. We dedicate the gifts in his name and pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to direct our worship. Amen. For the benefit of those of you who are visitors, and so many of you are visiting here today, uh, that it's necessary for me to go back and to review some in what we've been doing. In our church, we have some groups called care groups that have been meeting during the winter time. They've uh, disbanded for the summer months. But we, and those in the care groups, have been studying the book of James. And I have been trying to include in the service on Sunday morning 
a sermon that would correspond with the lesson that's studied during that week. Now, we began that uh, about 12 weeks ago, and so we've lost some uh, gaps along the way. This is really the eighth in a series of sermons that have been preached on James. Let me refresh the memory of those of you uh, who are visitors and who may not be familiar with this book. Uh, if you uh, look in your Bible, you'll find it right after the book of Hebrews. And uh, right after that book, we, one of the things that scholars usually want to know is how do you know what James this is? We believe that this James who wrote this book is the brother of our Lord. And I'll tell you why that's usually the accepted view by those of us who are evangelical and conservative in scholarship. It is that there would have been no other prominent James that it could have been. For James, the brother of John, was killed early as a martyr. This James served for more than 30 years as a bishop in uh, the city of Jerusalem, uh, a leader, a presbyter, a pastor. Uh, he saw the church from its formation. He was the brother of our Lord. But if you remember in John chapter 7, that even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him at first as the Son of God. And then after Calvary, and after his resurrection from the dead, and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, there comes the powerful conviction on James, the brother of our blessed Lord, of who his brother was. And yet, in great humility, he does not refer to himself in this letter as James, the brother of our Lord, but rather as James, a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. It's a very practical letter. There are about, uh, according to some counts, 108 verses. If the verses were not included in the Bible, scholars down through the years uh, wrote those in so that we could find things. Uh, and if you count 108 verses to uh, the Greek text of James, you find that there are more than 60 imperatives. Now, an imperative is something that you are commanded to do. Uh, that's advice that's given. And we said in the beginning, when we take advice, we want to know who the advice is coming from. And this is a long experienced pastor and one who has a great message for us today. James wants to see your faith at work. He wants to see it in action. The first part of his letter begins with, do not think it strange concerning trials that have come upon you. Then he begins to speak about the fact that a person is a person no matter how small, and he admonishes us to be humble before the Lord. The third sermon that I preached I call through the looking glass, that James does not want you to think that because you have heard a sermon that's powerful and moving, that therefore you are a Christian by virtue of the fact that you've heard it. You can see some of this in the oratory and politics. I have people who come out of a rousing speech or a sermon and they'll say that was a very moving religious experience. It'll be a moving religious experience when you put it to work, when you walk out of the church and change your way of living. It's not a moving religious experience because it appealed to you and to your emotions and your sentiment at the time you heard it. 
It's where the rubber meets the road that counts. It's how are you going to live it when you have to die to yourself in order to put it into practice in your daily walk in life. That's when it really counts. That's what's so empty about the, uh, so much of the political rhetoric that you hear. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I do not care really who you vote for. You vote for whoever you feel led to vote for. But when I watched Minnie Pearl the other night give the keynote at the Democratic Convention, the, the humor thing doesn't really uh, grab me all that much. I've heard too much of it uh, over the time. Uh, I respect the lady. She's got a lot of brains, but uh, that's not the way to get at it sometimes. Uh, you, 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 you have to separate all of this rhetoric from what's going to be lived out day by day. And that's what James is talking about. Uh, hearing the word may make you feel like you've done it when it's not true. I remember once when I talked to Harry McPherson, who was the speechwriter for President Johnson and uh, uh, Horace Busby. And uh, they said to me, what advice do you have as a preacher toward the uh, crafting of speeches, the balancing out of sentences, the inclusion of scriptures and quotations. And I said, I'll tell you one of the things that I have to say about speeches of a political nature, that we have a tendency to promise what we know cannot be delivered. It's not realistic enough. It would be so much better if it was only realistic. Now this is what James demands. He demands that if you say that you know Jesus Christ, then you should show it in your life. Then also, toward the end of the first chapter, he speaks about partiality, the lifting up of one face over another in church. And we call that sermon, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief. You remember the little rhyme that you, rem that you said as a child? Uh, the key thing... Uh, that we think about there is that in the church there are, uh, you know, we have All Saints Day. Well, there are all saints and all sorts. There are all sorts of people in the church. And what James is saying is that whether you're black or white or yellow or brown or rich or poor or handsome or intelligent or not so intelligent, that in God's sight, all of us are equal. We are equal at the foot of the cross. And then James demands that the faith without works is dead. And that always leads us to the thing that has brought me to my knees so often, the monster in my mouth, my tongue. And we said there that God put our tongue in a cage behind our teeth uh, because it's a monster in a wet place and it's easy to slip. And we want to be uh, careful what we say, that we may speak well of, uh, that we may not just speak well of God on Sunday and then evil of our neighbor before we leave the church. I was talking to one of my sons who is a doctor, and he was telling me about the half-life of medicine, how long it takes certain medicine to get out of your brain cells or out of your bloodstream or your body chemistry. And I, I was saying, you know, that's a pretty good analogy for a sermon. Uh, you get under conviction about certain things that you, that you do in church, and it has a half-life of about 30 minutes. 
uh, when you leave the church and slam the door of your car and start home, you're just as ornery and mean as you ever were uh, before you went in. Uh, we, wise men are to bridle their tongue, James says, and he wants us to keep that. Then we spoke about the, in the last sermon on the gospel to the hedonist. Uh, hedonism is pleasure. And James is saying to the person who is seeking after pleasure, learn to go to God and to ask him for that which really satisfies. And then someone brings up the question, well, what does all of this have to do with our great political issues today and what we're faced with in life? And as we listen to the politicians and we watch the world's history unfold, it has a lot to do with it. If you watch the ABC report on drugs and the plague that this is to America, you see that there is 20 billion dollars in cash spent on cocaine in the United States of America. And I doubt if any taxes are paid on that money. 20 billion in cash. And when you think about the oil imports that come through the Persian Gulf, that's three times what we pay for the oil that comes through the, the, the Persian Gulf. This is what drugs are doing to America, but you won't get to it with politicians, no matter how clever. There's something deeper to it than that. What is it that is so painful about our existence that we have to be anesthetized into oblivion? What is it about our culture that's that way? What have we done? I've found a statement by a 21-year-old girl uh, attending a college who is not too different from many of the young people that I know, except perhaps in her ability to uh, put into articulate language the description of the feelings of her own generation. She, she said this, quote, We mature at the age of 12. We become world-weary with the boredom of the prostitute who has already seen too much of life by the time we're 16. At 18, we're ready to die. And that's a popular age for drug overdose. We spend our youth chafing. We strike out like little children throwing a tantrum. Our weapons are many the rejection of our parents and their values, the flaunting of our illicit sex lives, the rebellion that sees in the youth of today has no foundation. They rebel against they know not what. They are searching for something, but what that something is they cannot say. We see in our fathers and mothers scheming and debasing themselves ignoring the very values they offer to us as sacred, if they bother to do this at all. What are we to do except reject this hypocrisy? They say we are the hope of the world, and we have no hope. We only have hope in ourselves, and who are we? We cannot discover. Now, that tells you a part of the story of drugs. 
And then when you come to that, and then you see the disharmony that exists in the church, and you come to James and our lesson for today. It breaks up into three paragraphs. You can glance at it there and catch it very quickly, and I'll try to go through it speedily for you. He's talking about things that split up. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He realizes that in the church, he's back to the sins that come by speech again that we can slander. The Hebrews had a very interesting proverb. They said that slander is, is uh, like a troika, something that's threefold. Uh, number one, when we slander, the person who speaks is slandering himself. When we speak falsely and slander, we're slandering the person to whom we give that information. And thirdly, we're slandering the person that we talk about. And so the Hebrew scribes wanted us to avoid that slander. He that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother, this is not to mean that we are not to discern and not to be discriminating. Uh, but we are not to speak evil against uh, 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 the brother in the church. This disrupts and breaks up the fellowship. Speaks evil against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge, and we know that's God. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you that you judge your neighbor. Sometimes I hear people take God's name with a damnation oath towards someone else. Do you really want to cause someone else to be damned? Do you think you have that kind of judgment about you? Do you see how evil it is? James wants us to, to be true to God. Then in verse 13, he says, listen up now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain, whereas you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? Now that's our theme. What is your life? James knows that amongst these Jewish merchants, they are traders, uh, people who go and buy and sell. And uh, you could almost see them in a business room charting out their course about what they might do in the future. And uh, there were countries that actually brought Jewish people in because they are and still are famous people of merchandise and trading and lending and borrowing money and have great skills in commerce. And James is saying to this Christian community in Jerusalem, which will later be devastated by the Roman uh, 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 Emperor Tacitus and destroyed. He's saying to these people, what are you talking about? You're going to do this today and that tomorrow, whereas you do not know what tomorrow is going to be. What is your life, says James? What about your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Our life is here for a little while, and then it vanishes away very quickly. And yet, what does Jesus Christ have to do with your being here this morning? What does he have to do with the political conventions in both Atlanta and New Orleans or wherever else? I wonder 
how seriously, how really seriously we take Jesus Christ in our lives. Some time ago, the distinguished publishing house of Grosset and Dunlop commissioned a group of 28 educators and historians to come together and to select the 100 most significant events in human history and then to list those events in the order of their importance. They met and discussed for months and then they reported that they discovered the most significant event of history, according to them, was the discovery of America first. In second place was the invention of movable type by Gutenberg. Eleven different events tied for third place, and five events tied for fourth place. The events tying for fourth place were the writing of the Constitution of our country, the development of anesthesia, and the development of the X-ray, the discovery of the airplane, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus tied for fourth. But as we begin to see history unfold, this may not come as a surprise to us by the person who are secularists. But Jesus is not an also ran, and he is not tied for fourth. He is not simply one of those people who is invoked at the political conventions, or invoked at weddings or funerals, or invoked at baptisms and then forgotten about. James is telling us that he has not tied with anybody, that he is triumphant. I've thought often about that Roman Emperor Tacitus who had Jerusalem destroyed. And then some years later, I think it was about 135, there was a second destruction of Jerusalem, I believe by Hadrian. And I told the congregation earlier this year when we were speaking on this particular part of the history of Jerusalem, that Roman historian Hadrian determined that he would so utterly devastate, that Roman uh, emperor decided that he would so devastate Jerusalem that no one would ever, ever, ever speak of it again. And he gave it a new name. And I couldn't find anyone in the congregation then who knew what that new name was. And yet we see the name of Jerusalem every day, practically on television. God is working his purposes out as year succeeds to year, and Jesus will reign. So James says, instead of saying that you're going to do this and going to do that, your life is going to vanish like a vapor, instead you'd better say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. As it is, you're, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Again, James brings it back to the fact that you must practice your faith in Jesus Christ. King George III of England 
went to hear George Frederick Handel's performance of the Messiah for the first time. And historians tell us that when the Hallelujah Chorus was sung, that George III was so moved that he stood. And that started the tradition of the standing at that time in that majestic piece of music. He stood because he recognized not simply the beauty of the music, but that Jesus is Messiah and King, and that even though George III is King, that one day his crown has to be laid at the feet of Jesus. He is regnant. He is imperial. He ties with no one. He is immortal. He is the Lord of life. And those who have committed themselves to that Lordship of Christ have been the ones who have furthered the Christian gospel and who, in my opinion, have really made this world a better place. So James goes on and he talks to the rich people in the congregation. Now, riches are a matter of relativity. I have a suit on. I have a watch on somewhere around here. You've forgotten it. <laughs> I have a watch. There are people in the world who would think they were rich if they had clothes on their backs, if they had a watch, if they had food to eat. In James's day, uh, apparel was often used as a payment. Food, you, you had to get wages to eat each day. It was a, there was a great discrepancy between rich and poor. Precious metals, said James, would tarnish. Now what he's talking about there is the tarnishing. Your gold and silver have rusted. Now gold does not rust, but the lust for it does. Silver will tarnish, but the desire for it is what will really give way. Who wants to be the richest man in the cemetery? Their rust will be evidence against you and will eat at your flesh like fire. There are people who go after possessions in that way so that it consumes them. You have laid up treasure for the last day. And remember Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. You see the laborer got paid at the end of the day. That's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. When he worked that day, he got paid at the end of that day. And often his family would not eat that night nor the next day if he wasn't paid at that time. He had to be paid then. You have kept it back and you have cheated. He is speaking to people there. This is the word of God which he speaks to us in calling us to righteousness about slander, about the transitoriness of life, and about the wise use of whatever possessions he puts in our trust and in our care. I want to close with a story. You know, I saw Governor Clinton from Arkansas the other night. He got the greatest applause when he said, and in conclusion, <laughs> made a lot of preachers feel better. Um, well, uh, uh, this is a great story, and it'll be worth your hanging on to listen to. There's a story that comes from a long, long time ago when a king 
organized a great race, sort of like the marathon. It was a number of miles. And he was out there at the, at the starting line, and numbers of strong, muscular young men came to compete in that race. And they were to go from a certain golden milestone to race toward the king's palace and to come into his courtyard, and he would meet them there. He would go on by a chariot ahead of them, and then he would meet them there. And so they started on their race. And he told them that whoever won the race would get a bag of gold and that they would receive that as the reward. And so the race was run. But as the runners ran toward the king's palace, they were surprised that there was a barricade of rocks and rubble in the way and they had to scamper savagely over those things to get on through to get to the king's palace and finally they got into the courtyard and they all assembled there in the courtyard perspiring and waiting for the king to award his bag of gold to them and the king waited and he waited and he waited and then finally one runner came in whose hands were all bleeding and who was all scratched up and torn. And he looked at the king and he said, Sire, when I tried to get here, there was this pile of rocks and rubble in the road and I'm sorry that I'm so late. But he said, I, I dug through these things to get them out of the way. And he said, look what I found. I found a bag of gold at the bottom of it. And the king looked at him and loved him. And he said, the bag of gold is yours. He said, that's what I wanted you to find. He said to him, my son, you have won the race. For that one runs best who makes the way safer for those who follow. Now that's worth remembering. That one runs best who makes the way safer for those who follow. Will any young person get to heaven because you've made the way safer for him to follow? Do you show an example of holiness or godliness or honesty or integrity or self-sacrifice? Well, there's something bigger here. And that is that Jesus Christ has run best. Better than all these people who invented movable type and wrote the Constitution and everything else. Jesus Christ makes men and women and boys and girls different. He makes them new creations. And he did it with his bloody hands from the cross. He conquered from the cross and he makes us better because he died to take away our sins and to put a new life in us and to show us what really counts in life. On the way out to Texas we had a lot of time in the car and I had Haney, a little Egyptian boy who works for me and helps me a lot. I had, he does a great job taking things off of 
of videotape, and I had him copy the entire soundtrack of The Man from La Mancha, because I've been studying Don Quixote. And that mad knight, who so fascinates me because of his idealism, and I think his Christ-like figure, has an interesting phrase that he says over and over again. In last year's nest, there are no birds. And I tried to fathom what that means. In last year's nest, there are no birds. Your opportunity to live for God, to go on an errand for God, to be a knight errant, to do something good with your life, is flying away very, very fast. When I stood in the cemetery in Paris, Texas the other day and thought of my mother's death and looked at my father's grave, my uncle and the people in my family, it makes you think, in last year's nest, there are no birds. If you're going to do anything for God, you better do it today. If you're going to give your life to Jesus, you better do it now. If you're going to give your money to help somebody, you better do it now. One day, you'll face him. Let us receive the benediction. And now may the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs>